0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Uh, We have an interesting podcast coming up today. We're going to be talking about, what's the name of the book again? It's a phenomenal book.
1: Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class by Catherine Liu.
0: Yeah, it's a a really interesting topic. Um, You know, there's some disagreements, but that even makes it more interesting and more fun when you talk about that. Uh, But before we get into the interview, I mean, we're recording this on Thursday. And so last night was when we just got the news that Russia launched a full-scale invasion of um, Ukraine. Air,
1: land, sea, and cyber.
0: Now, by the way, I just I need to get this off my chest because I feel like this is super important. They had already invaded Ukraine. Like, I see a lot of weird disagreements on this on Twitter, and it's like, what are you guys talking about? No, they had already invaded Ukraine. Putin had already done an hour-long speech where he announced a peacekeeping mission in an area, uh, you know— in the breakaway independent republics that he just declared were breakaway independent republics. Right. They're not really that. They're still under international law, Ukrainian territory. So he had already invaded Ukraine. I just want to get that off my chest. I, def- yeah,
1: I think all that parsing over languages. Yeah, definitely but like, over at this I don't point. know why
0: people ever argued when he said he's doing a peacekeeping peacekeeping mission in Ukraine, why some people were like, pfft, pff, it- He's, he's, is he even really doing that, bro? I keep hearing you. I don't see anything happen. You saw videos all over the place on Twitter of the fucking tanks rolling into Ukrainian territory. What do you think that is? So I had done a video two days ago that said, you know, it was something like breaking Russia invade Ukraine.
1: Did you get pushback on
0: that? Uh, I fighting? No, I didn't really get okay. pushback. But I'm just saying stuff I've seen on Twitter, my own Twitter timeline, where people were like trying to act like there wasn't an invasion when there obviously was an invasion. It's like, yeah, OK. So there hasn't been firing yet at that point. Yeah. But we know it was coming. Right. It was obviously going to come. So anyway. Um, so, but there's a lot to talk about with this. Uh, now every, by the way, everything that we're going to tell you now, uh, some of this may evolve and change by the time this video posts, cause it's posting a day later. Again, this is being recorded on Thursday, uh, afternoon. So the invasion was of almost all of Ukraine. So the original thought was, and I'll, what I thought was going to happen was that it, the area that they declared is uh, now there are two independent states, Donetsk and Lugansk, in the eastern portion of Ukraine. Um, I thought what would happen is the areas that the separatists held, they would butt up against the Ukrainian military. The line that's
1: there. Because
0: yeah. uh, Putin claims that some of the territory that is still, that's part of the independent states, it was still being held by the Ukrainian military. So I thought along that line is where there would be fighting. Um, it turns out, it was way more than that.
1: Yeah. Well, and even the early, the initial reports were from that region. Plus, I mean, we're watching live on CNN as dude is having to put his flak jacket on in Kiev. And the so capital. the capital. So it's like, OK, are they just sending a message to the capital? No, no, no. This is eastern Ukraine, Central Od- Odessa, the eastern breakaway republics, the capital, um, you know. Taking airports, attacking the navy. I mean, this was wholesale, full-scale invasion. Worst-case scenario, um, shock and awe kind of an approach.
0: That's exactly what it is. Now they claim this is bullshit, but they'll tell you what they claim. They claim, oh, we're going after just the military targets
1: and the Nazis. Oh
0: yeah, denazification <laughs> yeah. of Ukraine. <laughs> Yeah, that's what uh, Putin said he was doing. Um, well, and we
1: already have images of them going after, civil, you know, apartment buildings. Right. Our, no, I, I
0: covered that. You covered that on your show. I bullshit. covered that on my show in a rushed segment that you had to do at the last minute and scrap everything together because, you know, you, it was in between shows where I was, you know, had to kind of get everything together. But um, yeah, so this is more than I think most people were expecting, including the experts.
1: Yes. Yeah. And certainly... Um, especially the people who were like Russia watchers and who were more uh, apt to sort of try to see things from the Russian point of view. There were a lot of analysts on that side who really were portraying this as like, oh, this this is likely a bluff. And part of the reason and thinking behind that is because there will be massive consequences for Russia because of these actions. And they're reporting too that their population is sort of, stunned and shocked that there's this level of aggression came from their own leader and their own state. And so, you know, between the sanctions that are going to be announced and the way that Russia is going to be made into basically a prior state, not to mention, I mean, my God, what did we learn from our invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and the way that that sucks a state dry and, and depletes you and the tremendous economic cost and cost in terms of, of lives and and pain and, and injury and suffering. Um, they've signed up for a, a real mess and a disaster here. So I think that's part of why there was such skepticism in some corners, myself included, that there would be this level of wholesale, full-scale, all-the-way-in type of invasion. You know, we were looking just after Putin times this, so he announces it while the U.N. Security Council is meeting, which is extraordinary in a statement in and of itself. And immediately after, what is Russian state TV put up on the screen? But it's an image of Ukraine with a, a diagram of all the quote-unquote gifts that were given to the country, with just a tiny space in the middle of the nation that they label as as actual Ukraine, basically saying the rest of this is all ours. It's all fair yeah. game and it's all on the so, table.
0: So uh, let, we'll get into that in a second because I want to have that conversation because I think it's the most important and crucial part that people need to try to wrap their minds around. Um, but first, let me say, the only thing I'm really surprised by is that he went to Kyiv, that he hit Western all Ukraine too. Yeah. That's what I'm surprised by. Um, all along, you know, I was seeing this for a long time. The people were, uh, a lot of people I like, a lot of people I respect were doubting that there would be an invasion at all. Yeah. I never took that line, ever. When I went back when this stuff was first really coming into, you know, national conversation prominence, when it was really heating up, I did a, uh, a discussion with Vosh on this. And I was like, I'm not one of these lefties who say, it's, you know, he's he's not definitely gonna not going to invade. I mean, right. I think it's very likely he invades. And the reason I said that is because there was anywhere from 100,000 to 150,000 troops on the fucking border. What, well, like, why would you do that? Unless you're considering he invaded Georgia in the past. He invaded Crimea in the past. You got up to 150,000 troops on the border. And there were some people who were like, no way that's going to happen, bro.
1: Especially, uh, and we talked about this a lot, that the speech that he gave Because then when he goes on for an hour, we both watched the whole thing. Yes, I I watched the entire thing. English Mm -hmm. dubbing translation from RT. Um, There's a portion that's about NATO, but the bulk of the speech, which is the sort of like realist portion of here's our security concerns and some of which, you know, we could agree or justify NATO's eastward expansion and all of that. But a good portion of the speech was just a complete rejection of Ukraine's legitimacy of existence at all, and this sort of desire to reclaim the former greatness of Russia that showed you there's a lot more nationalist concerns here than realist concerns. Because I think if you were just doing the sort of realist strategic calculus based on the defense concerns and what it's going to cost the Russian people and what they can gain, I don't think you take this action. I only think you take this action in the context of a A fierce nationalism and a sort of insanity of nationalism that causes you to, you know, take an action here, which is an absolute atrocity and which is going to cause, of course, uh, unbelievable levels of pain and misery in Ukraine, but is also going to be very damaging to the Russian people.
0: So the first half of the speech, as my mom very derisively called it, was the history lesson Mm -hmm. where he goes in and here I'll sum it up in as – Simply as as possible and as concise as possible. He basically says, "Look, Ukraine, we built you, we funded you, you're in debt to us. Um, you turned your back on us, and effectively, um, we were way too lenient. The Soviet Union was way too lenient when they let you in, and then said you can leave free of your own volition, and there's no consequences let you have whatsoever. Your
1: own nationalist identity. So that
0: was the yeah. that was the first part of the speech. That's it summed up. It's this idea of like." You owe us a debt, and now you're going to pay it back. Uh, and then the second half of the speech, as you pointed out, was, you know, we warned the West. This is about NATO, and NATO uh, kept expanding. You know, it expanded a number of times, and we said this was a red line. You're right up on our border, and that's unacceptable. So we're doing this for defensive reasons. I think they, now think
1: called it a knife to the throat or something Right, but now notice, like
0: notice, that. there is a contradiction there. You can't on the one hand say, here's all my historical grievances and this is why I'm doing it, but then also, no, 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 it's purely defensive. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. It's one or the other or it's a mix of both or whatever, but that certainly doesn't make sense the way he said it. Look, on February 21st, the President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine effectively came out and said, the NATO bid for us is stalled. It's a dream for us to join NATO. I mean, he was kind of conceding, like, we're not really going to join NATO. Now, if Vladimir Putin was only concerned about NATO and he heard that, you go, awesome, I'll take my W and and I'll I'll walk away or, you know, I'll draw down at least a little bit or do something. But he didn't do that, he did the opposite. And so that leads me to believe, whereas beforehand I would have said, you know, there's, it's majority likelihood that if NATO never expanded that he wouldn't do this. Now I've actually flipped. I think there's like a 60 or 70% chance he would have done this either way. I think it's, it's likely that um, even if NATO never expanded he would have he would have done this because that laundry list of grievances is a list of grievances that had nothing to do with NATO.
1: Yeah. I have on the broader like, you know, past 3 decades, piece of it, I don't know if there was another trajectory, another path that would have led to a very different outcome where Russia is more of an ally, where, you know, we're sort of united in some of the the fights that we're going to be facing here, you know, in the in this century, but I think very clearly the opportunity to diffuse this situation in the short term by, for example, like I was calling for, I think you were calling for Biden and the other NATO allies to just say, we're taking you like Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO and just actually make that clear. A move that I still think they should have done because it would have.
2: Oh, absolutely. Because
1: even if it had a 0.1% chance of working, that would be worth it. And even more significantly, it would really clarify Yeah,
0: now we know you're doing it for offensive reasons. It's got nothing to do with NATO. Right.
1: No legitimate reason whatsoever to be taking these sorts of actions. But I think that, you know, looking at the the long list of grievances, looking at the uh, outrageous level of the shock and awe assault that we see here, I think is very unlikely. That any sort of negotiating tactic we could have offered in this very immediate term would have been successful.
0: So let me ask you this: If NATO never expanded in the first place beyond the late '90s, do you think this would have happened?
1: It's just too speculative. It is too. Speculative. I think it's. Right. I, I do think there's a, a turning point. You know, when the announcement is made that we're going to admit. Georgia and we're going to admit Ukraine. There's certainly a heightening and an escalation and a sort of track that we're put on from there on out that has continued to be um, exacerbated. And then, you know, I mean, one thing that I was trying to think through today that I'd be interested to get your take on is, is the why right now, why was now chosen as the time. I saw some People who are Putin watchers saying he became sort of more paranoid and more grounded in these long-term historical grievances during the isolation of the pandemic. It could be because That's our as our I I agree. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um it could be because ourselves coming out of the pandemic. I mean, we've just proved to the world that we're incapable of doing the sort of basics of keeping our own public safe. So we're projecting this sort of, you know, internal divisions and inability to marshal a a coherent response nationally and globally? Is that the reason? Very hard to say, but I do think there was potentially, you know, a a while ago, a different track that we could have been put on in the immediate term. I still think we should have tried because like I said, even if there's a very small percentage chance of possibility, we needed to do it and it would clarify what was going on here. But I don't think it would have worked.
0: I mean, all we could have done is what we could do. And so if you neutralize the one thing he says he Nominally cares about. Well, then it, like you said, it makes it perfectly clear. Yeah. To know what we, what he's actually and I, doing. It I for. think
1: Zelensky, from what I can tell, did everything he could do. I mean, he really was trying diplomacy. He was trying to calm his own population. He was trying to tamp down, you know, any sort of hysteria. Well, he, I don't know
0: enough about Zelensky was, to say that. Well, I, mean, I
1: think the fact that he floated. We're going to take NATO off the table. He, I think dramatic he didn't dramatic say it day. that
0: strongly, but yes, he effectively conceded. Like, all right, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if NATO came out and said it, and if Biden came out and said it, maybe it would have made a difference. Maybe not. If we never expanded NATO in the first place, maybe it would have made a difference. Maybe not. But I mean, look, the and and the counter argument, by the way, to people is like, well, why can't they just democratically choose to join NATO? That's what every that's what the response would be is like, why are we even having the conversation about NATO? It's pure aggression. This is more of a right. A critique of what we're saying here. Yeah, and the response. There's multiple responses to that. One of them is part of the process of getting into NATO is not just that the the country wants to get into NATO, it's also that you want to let them into NATO. And there were NATO members who were like, "We don't want Ukraine in here."
1: Well, because it means that we then have a a defense obli- treaty obligation to defend them. Well, and, and also you know, that you know, significant. That's a significant Germany, commitment.
0: for example, has deep business ties with Russia. They don't want to piss off Russia and risk those business ties. There was a number of reason why, reasons why it was very complex and they wouldn't like, let them in. But the other thing is, even if we grant this idea of like just democratically choosing, that's the end of the conversation. Well, I mean, look, keep it real. If you're democratically choosing in eastern Ukraine, if they want to be part of Russia, they're probably going to choose yes, even under no coercion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So like, if we're really going to take just the democratic approach to a complex geopolitical situation, which there is an argument for. I'm not saying it's a stupid argument. I'm just saying you got to weigh the upsides and the downsides. You know, the downside is then also Eastern Ukraine goes to Russia. So, again, I would have never, if I was in charge, I never would have expanded NATO in the first place. That would have taken away any potential argument that Vladimir Putin had that this is defensive. But ultimately, it's very possible he still would have done it because he I mean, he was a unhinged madman in that speech. I don't care about your fucking, gr- your long history lesson of, of grievances, bro. I don't care. In the same way that when the, Uni- the United States, anytime we do any offensive military action, we come with a boatload of rationalizations. Yeah. Oh, this happened, and then that happened, and then that happened, and then 1978, this happened. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. You're offensively invading a country that they're they're a sovereign country. I don't care about your, I mean, are you kidding me? The arguments he's using, any country can claim somebody else's territory. Because we all have history of the borders ever-changing, shifting, moving. Are you kidding me? Go yeah. back and look at a World War One map, World War II, all the way up until today. Borders are constantly shifting and moving. Well, we could all he, say, well, I want that thing. Now I want that thing. We used to have that thing. We used to have that thing.
1: And he points to our hypocrisy which is fair, but that doesn't mean that you get right. to then. You
0: guys do bad things, why so can't I do bad do things too? do do even worse things, yeah.
1: right? I mean, you know, I mean it was it was noteworthy how he threw WMDs in our face during that speech as well. Right. Effectively, you know, creating this bogus rationalization that oh Ukraine might develop WMDs, well what that is, it's a wink and a nod to our own hypocrisy of saying, "Hey, you guys invaded Iraq on bullshit pretenses, so I get to do the same here." The fact that you can point to it's it's like global War-based whataboutism. It's right, it's yeah. a stupid argument. The fact that yes, you have legitimate grievances doesn't make your actions right now okay. That that we did bad things well, doesn't allow you to do bad it's things.
0: It's an anti-logic, is what it is. Yeah, because you're acknowledging that what America did was fucked up, but you're just and saying you're I like, want to do the so fucked I'm up do shit the too. Same, same it's thing. It's like well, no, neither one of you should have done the fucked up shit. We're super consistent. We said it when I mean, it's America doing it. How often do I go after America? I go after America all the time. But the fact of the matter is, you got to. Uh, you got to oppose imperialism wherever it rears its ugly head and make no mistake about it this absolutely is imperialism this is a guy who wants to reconstitute some semblance of the Russian empire and pick off whatever he can and whatever he'll get away with now but now the deeper question is what do you make of Biden's response because my take on it was I liked his his first reaction I think I think the sanctions package was a reasonable sanctions package. The line I used is, it deters without escalating. It was like two specific banks that he sanctioned. He sanctioned the oligarchs. They axed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It was very much like tit-for-tat, proportional response, so I thought it was reasonable. The only thing I think Biden missed is what you said before, which is, just say... Ukraine's not going to be in NATO anyway. Just say it. If you just say it, you take away his argument that this is all defensive. So why didn't you say it? You should have said that. That's the one thing he missed, which is very important that he missed it. But he did miss it. But then now the conversation is... They're going to hit him with the whole shebang. They're going to hit him with every single sanction under the sun.
1: Well, okay, so we're recording this at a time when we don't know what the sanctions package is. And I've seen reporting that some allies want to do the swift banking sanctions and that the U.S. is more resistant.
0: No. Okay, well, maybe you you read that. Let me tell you what I read. Okay. Okay, and this is from the um, the Dimitro Kuleba, who's, I think he's a Ukrainian... Uh, a Ukrainian government official Germany Italy Hungary and Cyprus are blocking a decision to disconnect Russia from the Swift network um Italy Hungary and Cyprus were somewhat expected but um Germany is is kind of unexpected because they've released a very strong statement very much against what Putin's doing but again this goes back to I think they're realizing if you if you totally cut off uh Russia. They have deep economic ties with Russia, and that might be real pain for the civilians of Russia. The citizens, excuse me, the the citizens of Germany. Yeah. And so they're like, we don't want to hurt our own population. So, like, what what are we going to do here? I
1: don't blame them. Well, and so I don't want to go too far down the speculation path right now because we're recording at a time when we don't know exactly what the path is. I would just say that um, I agree with your point that there are a couple things I thought Biden did correctly, which is that. He was very clear from the beginning, we are not putting boots on the ground. Even was asked about, well, what if we've got our people there and you've got to save them? He said, they need to get out then. We are not going in boots on the ground. And the fact that he's laid that marker down so clearly and consistently from the beginning will hopefully help to protect against what is sure to be war drums now from corners on the left and the right. I mean, that's the only logical – the only – for all the people that are saying, you know, this is this is Hitler, this is Munich, this is Chamberlain, this is appeasement, all of these things. Well, the logical next step then is, OK, we're having World War III. So the fact that Biden was very clear from the beginning about that, I, I think that was the right thing to do. I think with regards to the actions he's taken on sanctions as a deterrence, but not going all the way in in a way that, you know, then Russia can say, well, you already sanctioned us, so we may as well do it. I think that was right. But I do think it was a, a tremendous mistake, a really significant mistake to not make clear Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO, which is something that we all already know. The Ukrainians already know that. And so you're you're precluding the even if it's a small possibility, the possibility of deescalating this for the principle of, in theory, Ukraine could join NATO, even though we're never going to actually let them join NATO. So I do think that that was a a significant failure on Biden's part. In terms of what I would like to see in uh, sanctions going forward, I would just caution that, on the one hand, obviously you have to exact a price for this type of outrageously aggressive and destructive behavior. On the other hand, the type of sanctions – That really devastate civilian populations have not been effective and have only served to exacerbate tension. So when we think about Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, these sanctions that have hit civilian populations really hard. In fact, are used oftentimes by regimes to hide their own failings and they can blame all of their problems then on the sanctions from the West.
0: Well, that's a point that I have made repeatedly that you you can't and shouldn't do any sanctions that hurt Russian civilians. Also, it's just a matter of principle because Russian civilians didn't fucking do this. Yeah. There are plenty of Russian civilians who don't agree with what Vladimir Putin is doing here. Yeah. In fact, they just announced, uh, you know, one of Putin's officials came out and said, no protesting, no protesting, but it's only because of COVID. So they're trying to cover it. it's oh, like, oh, it's just, oh, there's health issues. No, it's not. It's because there's some rumblings there's of dissent. anti-war sentiment. There's dissent, you know, and you don't want that. But hold on. I, yeah. want, I want to continue mm-hmm. here. Um, so if they do the SWIFT sanctions, which it looks like it might hit a roadblock, but if they were to do that, Russia has said we will take that as a declaration of war. So that's why I was terrified last night, because I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to do the fucking SWIFT sanctions. They're going to do the SWIFT sanctions. And then if they do the SWIFT sanctions, then it's not like Russia is going to sit there and take that. Then they're going to do something like maybe some cyber attacks or something on the West. It's going to be it. That is the tit for tat scenario that everybody feared, which could genuinely lead to World War III. So in a sense, I get it. And I agree. Something needs to be done to make clear you can't you can't do this. But again, you have to find a way to deter without escalating. You have to find a way to be proportional. And it's weird because proportional in this instance, if you're being very literal, is like, we end up fighting. But it's like, (laughs) you can't do that because of World War III, because you got two nuclear armed powers. So you have to find a way to do sanctions that don't hurt civilians, but exact a price from Putin, exact a price from the oligarchs. And um, make it so that it's not going to lead to some sort of insane retaliatory action. And I will say on the, the Hitler point, I totally don't agree with that. And I think people who make that point are reckless and dangerous. Yeah, in the same way that I think people on the left who are pretending like Hitler uh, that uh, that uh, Putin's being purely defensive, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. all that matters is cool. NATO. It's got nothing to do with the you know it, Putin being an authoritarian and wanting to resurrect aspects of the Russian Empire. That's a dangerous position because then it's like do whatever you want. I don't give a fuck. It doesn't matter at all. But it's also a dangerous position to keep saying it's like Hitler. It's like Hitler's like Hitler for the point you made, which is well. Then what's the logical response if it's like Hitler? The logical response is World War Three. The logical response is, immediately deploy everything we got and throw it at him at 100 miles an hour. And the fact of the matter is, guys, Hitler had global dominance ambitions. As bad as Putin is, and this isn't to downplay him even 0.1%, there's a big difference between sphere of influence versus global domination. That's not to say that's cold comfort to somebody living in Ukraine right now. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But it also happens to be factually true. Now, if in the long run, uh, you know, He starts doing Hitler and he he tries to go beyond the old Soviet Union borders. Okay, then we're having a different conversation. But if that's the reality then, everybody better go b- do their doomsday prep now and go buy their bunker because it's a rapsky on all of us if that's the case.
1: Yeah, this is a problem with um, people only knowing like one historical anecdote
2: that they right. can reach well, like, <laughs> Everything, everything is War II, Hitler. I
0: kept saying World War One was the more analogous thing because one treaty brought in this person, and that, that person, and that person. Everybody's fighting each other and they don't even know why they're fucking fighting each other Yeah, because Archduke Franz Ferdinand they got killed and it's like, who, who even is that guy? I don't know, but we're fighting and dying as a result of
1: it. I mean, there's also historical historic parallels with the initial Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the way that we, you know, armed and trade an insurgency there and the way that that really sort of uh, helped to bring down the Soviet Union at that time. So, I mean, there are a lot of other parallels you could draw and you could draw other than just Hitler. I wanted to pick up on your point about the way the Russian public is responding, which, you know, I have no special knowledge here, but I'm just reading the reports in the media. I think it's extremely telling that they banned protest. That obviously says that there's a lot of Dissent that they don't want to see in the streets. There's a lot of Russian celebrities who are posting um, anti-war commentary on their social media channels. And the New York Times interviewed just some regular Russians um, who are really shocked and confused and and disturbed because they're their stock market in- immediately dropped 45%. 45% yeah. um, ATMs were running out of cash. I mean, this sparked an immediate crisis in Russia as well. And here's a quote from uh, someone they describe as a 60-year-old pensioner who said as she walked through a park, it's so strange that Russia could attack anyone. This has never happened before in history. So there was a lot of shock apparently among the public That Russia took this level of aggressive action. You know, it's one thing to buy into the state media propaganda about, oh, these separatist regions and they deserve their independence and they're being attacked by the Ukrainians. It's quite another thing when you see this overwhelming assault. And, you know, we're in the modern. Uh, information ecosystem where especially young Russians have access to what we have access to on social media and can see these videos for themselves was another uh, an interview that I listened to before uh, the the latest actions happened. And um, they were talking to uh, someone who was like in their 20s in Russia, who was a Russian, and she was saying that there's a big generational divide in in terms of how these things are seen, too, because the older generations are mostly consuming the diet of like state media propaganda. Younger Russians are consuming a lot of the same information that we're getting online.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be obviously The New York Times is going to pick the narrative they want to run with and run with those quotes. But I think that there's going to be a polarization where you're going to have some people who are really all in on it and then other people who are very opposed to it. Mm -hmm. And the poll I saw before the invasion was it was right at 50 percent of people who said that it would be fair for Russia to go to war to keep Ukraine out of NATO. Now, granted, this literally wasn't about that because Ukraine said, I'm not we're not going to be in NATO. It's a pipe dream. So it wasn't about that. But if it was 50 50, given that set of facts, you know, maybe 60 40 or something like that right now, it'll also depend on just how Effective the propaganda is because, yeah, they've been pouring on the propaganda heavy, son. The stuff that they were playing on Russian media. I mean, I read a tweet from Clint Ehrlich when I covered this when it first broke that was just mind boggling. Where they're saying, like, it's euphoric
1: the state TV on on Russian media. Yeah, yeah. What is your gut on how our public will react? Because we both saw that poll from the AP before the full Russian invasion that was like only 24 percent said we should have a lot to do with what's going on in Ukraine?
0: That's a tough one to answer. Um, I I genuinely don't know if I had to take a guess. I would say there'd be a little bit of an uptick depending on what our media does. See, that's the other problem. And we can finish on this, talk about the media angle of this. The other problem that I see is, number one, I'm convinced everybody that's in Biden's ear is telling him you have to be more aggressive, you have to be more hawkish, you have to do more sanctions, you have to go, 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 go. Yeah. And I think the role of the U.S. media is going to be the exact same thing. I mean, MSNBC, before Putin even started firing, MSNBC had on John Bolton, like asking a guy who's a bloodthirsty neocon warmonger, war criminal, who was wrong about absolutely everything, who said when in the middle of negotiations with North Korea, yeah, we're going to use the Libya model for him, meaning give us your weapons and we'll still overthrow you. (laughs) Right. This is the guy they invited on. So I think and I watched some Fox News, Fox News. Of course, literally. Where's his pound the table moment? Why isn't he being more aggressive? So you're going to get on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, wall to wall. Be more aggressive. Do more sanctions. Yeah. Escalate, escalate, escalate. These people don't realize you are playing with fire. It not nothing happens in a vacuum. If you do swift sanctions, then Russia does some shit in return to us, and then we do some shit back to them. And next thing you know, boom, the fucking nukes are in the air.
1: Yeah. So your, it's your time adversary to be, has a say in how these things all
0: exactly. Occur. So you have it. Look, you have to be rational, strategic, intelligent. You have to deter without escalating. I'm not on team do nothing. You can't do nothing. That's obvious. Um, but you can't go too far. And that's a real problem. And again, you'll hear nothing but wall to wall. There is no such thing as too far. That's what you're going to hear in the media. I have no doubt
1: about it. That's, that's the pro One of the many problems with the media is that the one thing they consistently uniformly reward is hawkishness. Right, That is, you know... That's the day you Trump know. became president when yeah, he bombed you draw, Syria. You draw, you Look at Trump the beauty of our missile. You murder, you know, the Iranian general. Like, if when you respond and behave and the only thing that they even liked that biden did in afghan afghanistan withdrawal was when they he like drone striked that family Mm -hmm. you know they thought that was that was good for a minute until we discovered and they said
0: he got isis and it wasn't isis at all of
1: course not propaganda yeah and so i mean that's all of the incentives and you also know the way that the um deep state will leak against him if he isn't doing the things that they want him to do they will leak against him to also try to put pressure on and say, you know, oh, this adversary, China, now thinks you're weak unless you do the this kind of sanction or unless we have boots on the ground. So it's going to be a lot to resist. I think a sign of that was something that was kind of hopeful but is also kind of ominous. There was a bipartisan letter um, that had everybody from, like, Matt Gates and Louis Gohmert to AOC and members of the squad just saying— If there's going to be boots on the ground, you have to come to us for consultation. You know, that's what the constitutional process lays out. And so that both says there was a bipartisan interest in actually, you know, authorizing any kind of engagement, but also says that they see it as possible that tensions could get ramped up enough that that would be an active consideration on the table.
0: Yeah, I have a slight disagreement on that, though, because I find the process criticism always sort of tedious and weaselly. Like, just say, no war with Russia, period. I get they're making, oh, you have to come to us if you're going to do it. I get it, I get it. But the process stuff is like, it's not a moral stand. It's not. Like, a moral stand is like, no war with Russia. This is the nuclear age. We're all gonna fucking die.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No war with Russia. Can't do it. Can't do it. yeah. So, you know, but that, that wasn't what they said. So I don't know, buckle up because we're more on the brink. That I was thinking of the doomsday clock because that doomsday clock is a fucking tiny little pube hair away from midnight <laughs> for real.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because Russia will, re- whatever we do, Russia is going to respond in some way. And if that impacts people's daily lives and whips up a sort of nationalist fervor here, then how do we respond? And mm. it's just off to the races.
0: And China's eyeing fucking uh, Taiwan right now. Yeah. The people with the Already most wishy-washy washy statement.
1: Already over Taiwan.
0: China had the most wishy-washy statement. Israel. Um, No, Israel condemned them, but it's hilarious because they're the biggest hypocrites in the world. <laughs> they're like, you're occupying land that's not even yours. <sighs> it's like, you're Israel. <laughs> that's like your whole thing. <sighs> anyway, but in India... Didn't say anything because Mm. they they buy Russian military equipment. China was wishy-washy. My guess is there is some sort of deal cut between China and Russia that we don't know about, which is China's going to help shore up Russia if all the sanctions get unleashed on them. But it looks like right now maybe they won't even do it because whatever the process is, you had to get everybody to agree for SWIFT, and now everybody does agree. So we'll see what happens. I think he might end up doing sanctions that fall short of SWIFT. So yeah. maybe he will be able to walk that line of again of deterring without escalating. But that's the best-case scenario we could go for. Deter without escalating, and this thing ends quickly, And 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 Putin meant it when he said, let's let's just disable the military and get out or whatever, which I doubt that's it. But I can hope. So fingers crossed. That's what we'll hope for.
1: In the meantime, we have a great conversation to get to. And we'll start with a little bit um, on what is going on in Ukraine. Uh, Catherine Liu is a professor of media at UC Irvine, and she is also author of the great book Virtue Hoarders, the case against the professional managerial class. Let's get right to it. Joining us now, we have Professor Catherine Liu. It's
2: so great to meet you. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.
1: Um, I want to get more specifically to your great book, Virtue Hoarders. But we wanted to start with some of the events that are unfolding in Ukraine. And you were saying that there was a piece written by Masha Gessen that really struck you as being um, correct and and sort of accurate in the way that they were looking at it. It's titled "How the Kosovo War Air War Foreshadowed the Crisis in Ukraine." Twenty three years later, Kremlin propaganda still used the NATO bombing campaign to justify their own actions. What was it that Masha laid out that really sort of landed with you?
2: Um, well, there's this really dramatic moment. She writes when um, the um, one of the Russian um, I think finance minister was on a plane to um, D.C. to talk to Al Gore, and he said, "Please." And they're on the phone. He says, "Don't bomb Sarajevo." And uh, Gore says, "No, I'm sorry, we're going to bomb Sarajevo." And the Russian finance minister was going to talk about um, IMF and entering the global you know economy, and his plane turns around, and he goes back to Moscow. So there was a the sort of trauma, if you like, since we. Like to talk about how traumatized we all are. Um, Gessen's um, take, which I usually don't agree with, is that the Russians were so deeply shaken, traumatized, if you like, by the fact that they had lost all leverage and influence in the sort of Eurosphere. And Sarajevo was bombed. And it was in the name of stopping the um, war in Kosovo against a renegade. um Kosovo. So um, Milosevic, you know, proved himself to be intractable to NATO and liberal values. And um, the Russians did not want to see the breakup of Yugoslavia. I think a lot of, you know, former Yugoslavians didn't want to see the breakup of Yugoslavia. But um, the NATO incursion, you know, bombed a city that had thought of itself as being incredibly cosmopolitan, Connected to the world, Yugoslavia under Tito was one of the more liberal states was like a renegade state in many ways in the eastern bloc and um she mentions how people would sit were sitting in cafes in Sarajevo saying, You know we can't imagine the city being bombed and then it was bombed. It was precision bombing there were so that no NATO troops were on the ground. You remember it was like the presaging of the war in Iraq, this kind of, the war in Afghanistan, this kind of American war now that's waged by drones with no um with a kind of like, you know, video game um interface between the pilots and the uh, people who are being bombed. There were civilian casualties, if you remember too, they bombed the Chinese embassy in Sarajevo. It was an accident. But um the realignment that we were hoping for in the Cold War. Uh, At the end of the Cold War just didn't happen like that. The dream of that was in ashes. I mean, I remember um, thinking in 1989 that things would get better for American, you know, in terms of American um, reinvestment in the country because we had had, you know, 10 years of Reagan and then, you know, um, Bill went, especially when Bill Clinton comes into power, you're thinking, okay, we're going to reinvest in, American, in America because we don't need to spend – have this, like, gigantic war chest. And I think the bombing of Sarajevo is really, like, the the nail in the coffin of that kind of dream.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I was just talking to you before we came on air here, and I was saying that that's sort of like the first conflict, war – that I remember as a kid. And I was born in 1988. When did this happen? What year was this? 1990?
2: 99. 99. Was it 99? Was it that late? Yep.
0: Okay, so I was a little idiot then for quite a long time.
2: strangely, they were fighting. They were fighting, but this was the bombing of, like, this beautiful um, resort, medieval city, that was, like, a precious, you know... um, um, city core that we think of as being like Siena or Luca or, you know, the, or Barcelona. I mean, this was the Eastern equivalent and they bombed the shit out of that city.
0: Yeah. I remember the feeling of thinking like, wait a second, I kind of thought we were done with war. Like I had thought mm. as a naive little kid, like, you know, sheltered probably didn't think much about that stuff. Then when I saw that on the news, I was like, I thought we were done with war. I thought like after World War II, everybody was like, all right, we figured it out. Let's all have peace now forever. And clearly that was like a wake up call. And then, you know, after that, it's like you had just conflict after conflict, after war, after war, you know, 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, the list goes on and on. And then, you know, I was talking, I was talking to you about this last night that, yeah, especially now being born in 1988, being a millennial, there was like a little period where you felt like everything sort of made sense. But then everything from like 2001 on is just one catastrophe after another catastrophe, whether it's war or the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and great recession. Or, you know, one of the things I mentioned was, uh, remember when Trump randomly assassinated a top Iranian commander and acted (laughs) like it was just some normal shit. And I'm sitting there thinking, you idiot. Like, what have you, like, what are you doing? And, you know, here we are today with what's going on in Ukraine and, yeah, it's just, it's it's genuinely unsettling to see the state of the world and how it's always something that's just, you know, we're on the brink. The, this idea of like an end of history analysis, like, well, we've sort of gotten to the end of history and analyzing it like that. No, we're in the middle of history and it yeah. will continue to be incredibly scary.
1: I, my, so, uh, there was one other, go ahead, Catherine.
2: Um, there's just one other thing I wanted to add to what, um, the Yugoslavian conflict normalized was, um private pro, private companies, contractors profiteering off that war. Um, mm. Clinton decided to, like, privatize food supply to NATO troops. So you had um, a company now that um, monopolizes a lot of food services on our campus called Sodexo. It's one of the most um, anti-union, low-wage, exploitative companies, but it pioneered its food services provisions by profiting off public institutions like the U.S. government and the sort of um, conflict in um, Ugo, the former Yugoslavia by um, getting this government contract and just making gazillions of dollars over it. I mean, and this is what happened in Iraq. So like you, you, the conflict in the former Yugoslavia was the um, testing ground for this new model of private um, um, profiteering in an American war effort.
1: And Kosovo was, of course, brought up by Putin. I also was listening, though, to BBC interviews with other Russian scholars and officials. And they, I mean, this was something that all of them routinely, consistently brought up. My own sort of, uh, you know, childish experience and and knowledge of our overseas conflicts was um, under first Bush. And the town I grew up in uh, is the economy is centered around a naval base. So, remember, my public school sponsored, like, a pro-war poster contest. Oh, Oh. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, and I was Um, one of the winners.
2: Oh. Um, And what you got if you won. Yeah,
1: I know. It's, like, this is classic my childhood because I was very, like, I am the people pleaser, and I will get the A, and I will be the teacher's pet. But, yeah, what you got if you won was um, a tour of the base that is in the town that everybody's parents wow. worked at. Yeah, um, and mm-hmm. I remember we all got dr- dressed up in our, like, little red, white, and blue outfits oh. to go tour the naval base after yeah. we won our pro-war b- pop booster contest. When
0: we oh. think of other nations doing stuff like that, like, when you think of, like, Iranian nationalism and, like, them doing similar things, everybody's like, oh, well, that's, that's great," But when we do it, it's like... What do you mean? This is yeah, normal. It's, it's like, no, actually, no, it's normal. not normal they, in any of the they circumstances put them up all
1: around the little like auditorium area so you could see everybody's patriotic fervor. So, yeah. But that actually brings me to only, one of the questions. Only, um, go ahead.
2: Go, no, no. Go ahead. I was, uh, it brings I was me to one of joke. the things
1: I wanted to, to get from you about this, too, which is like, how does your sort of class position in this country um interface with how you think about war and peace, how it impacts your daily life, how you're likely to, you know, either benefit or suffer based on the actions of the U.S. government. How do you think this is going to play out for different classes of people, both in terms of their opinion of what should be done and also how it impacts their realities?
2: Um, Well, I think that the the lost dream of national health care is one thing that you know, will be increasingly deferred because of um, this war, uh, This military adventure, but you know, since the Cold War, we can say that the professional managerial class, which is this class that I've been analyzing and really focused on, has really risen in power because Rand Corporation, Brooks, Brookings, all those think tanks that are sort of para-governmental, um, really promoted this idea that there would be there's this expert out there who is dictating American foreign policy, American economic policy. If you think of, like, the ultimate PMC guy who is really a war criminal, it's not Henry Kissinger for me. It's um, Robert McNamara. And he just seems so – and this is, like, way before your time. I don't think I ever saw him on TV, but um, I came to the U.S. in 68, and – um, was in the middle of the Vietnam conflict. And he just was really calm about saying things like, we're going to carpet bomb Cambodia and we're, we need to because the communists are there. The anti-communist nationalist fervor of the Cold War was executed and implemented by these nerds, you know, by guys who wore glasses like mine and had, you know, pocket protectors and were incredibly um, measured in their evaluations and their sort of macro statistical evaluation of what it would take to win the Vietnam War, what it would take to win the Korean War. And we got used to, in the Cold War, I not want to say we, but, you know, as a class of people with professional managerial investments in this kind of alleged objectivity and this proper execution of um, policy that this class would be um, experts within for the prosecution of what turned out to be like just hideous atrocities. But uh, we like to think, and this is the revisionist history that I offer we like to think that Abby Hoffman and the hippies and, the, and Mario Saviano, who's more of a tragic figure, but that the 60s protesters, that the anti war protesters were, you know, the opposite of Robert McNamara, right? They were like the pro, they were like. Um, hippies, they were experimental, they were into Eastern, whatever. But what actually happened with this counterculture is that it inaugurated an internal culture war against, you know, the squares. Mm-hmm. And it was an upper middle class, highly college-educated sort of vanguard that um inaugurated a kind of culture war. Within um, you know media, culture, industry areas, government areas that you know did not lead to greater redistribution of wealth. In fact, in '72, um, wealth redistribution redistribution downward is reversed, and this class of you know what we like to call boomers now done pretty well for themselves. They could declare victory on many fronts in the culture wars, but in the economic war um, against working class and middle class Americans, um, they presided over the most massive, you know, redistribution of wealth to the top in the past 50 years. And I just think like it's highly, it, it's, a, it plays a really ambiguous role. In American progressive politics and the prosecution war, and now and the prosecution of imperialism, and one of the things in the '90s that you know, if I, I, I am writing a book on trauma and on the instrumentalization of human rights for American um, um, aggression abroad, and you know, human rights became the cudgel in the 1990s that. You know, intellectuals, progressive intellectuals, people like Gayatri Spivak, who, you know, none of you know, but thankfully, but is a post-colonial scholar, was really at the forefront of like, you know, we're going to use human rights to secure um, the Pax Americana after the fall of the um, Berlin Wall, after the dissolution of the USSR. And it turns out, like, Americans don't really care about human rights. And that's another thing we can talk about It's a very, very carefully catered, you know, stylized version of human rights that becomes the excuse for military adventures abroad in the 1990s, in the post-Cold War period, when, as you say, like many of you thought um war was over, I'm not Crystal, but um Americans thought we were, we would live in a time of global peace, but suddenly we were like, oh no, these guys are doing wrong things now. And this is why the whole thing about calling China out and um, condemning Chinese nationalism, condemning Russian nationalism um, is a mask for American nationalism. Mm.
0: Um, So I want to ask you about your book, because it's a topic that um, is really interesting to me. And Crystal and I have had some conversations about this off air and gone back and forth on the whole concept of the professional managerial class. So first, just Define it for everybody and and tell people what interested you in the topic.
2: Okay, so if you want to know, I'll, I'll go backwards and just remind me to define it. You know, I come from um, a family where my both my grandmothers were illiterate, right? So we immigrate to the United States. We have this enormous, um, I have this enormous faith in education. It sort of takes me out of A kind of quasi-abusive immigrant family. I'm totally invested in entering this class from which um, my family, which is very alienating to my family. My father enters the UN, but he's got a really bad, um, he's not assimilated to this class. He he has a bad experience with regard to white-collar work, if we just want to put it that way. And um, so I, as an aspirational member of the PMC, thought, you know, I'm going to enter this class of people who are reasonable, who are objective. I'm going to enter. I'm going to leave the ideological wars that you know marked China's history, that marked my family, and then I and and the um, experience of actually being in the professoriate uh, um, all these years, like almost three decades, is that this is this is a class that believed itself, and that I believed was progressive was objective, was courageous, was um, critical, was negative. But instead, I found myself in the midst of these struggles where there was so much dishonesty, so much corruption. Um I'm not going to bore you with academic um, infighting and the problems of peer review, but I think that I had an outsider's point of view with regard to this class. I had a drive to understand its significance for myself and for... Um, the American dream, if you like. And um, I really, really am committed to class analysis. And I didn't know why we couldn't actually understand the contours of this class, why we in this class talked about every other form of difference. And for years of my life in academia, no one even wanted to talk about class. They want to talk about difference, difference, whatever kind of, you know, from Derrida to feminism, but never about class contradiction. And so um, I have an outsider's point of view on this class. I have an outsider's rage and disappointment at the ideals of this class and its failures to achieve those ideals under a liberal democracy. So that's how I came to this. It's sort of I'm, you know, late in my career and I feel like I can actually say the things that I want to say. This is what mm-hmm. I fought for. Academic freedom, this is what mm-hmm. I fought for. Dissent, this is what I fought for. The ability to be a Marxist in a department that's very hostile to actually, and, and, you know, in an environment that's very hostile to historical materialism of any sort. So um, as a definition of this class, as I, you know, in my previous book, I sort of looked at this too, is that the American progressive era that responded to the absolute abuse of power in the Gilded Age was inaugurated in large part by professors, by experts, by social workers, by people from Jane Addams to John Dewey who were early avatars of you know, saying, we need to have professions, we need to have professional protocols, we need to defend people against um, American oligarchs, against robber barons. You know, the, um, the formation of tenure, the formation of the American Association of University Professors was directly um in struggle against like Mrs. Leland Stanford Jr. who funded Stanford. And so um there were these regulatory um, organizations like the American Medical Association, the American, as I said, the American University of um, Professors, that said, you know, the free market frontier, like Wild West way of dealing with social problems is not working. Um, capitalism is riding roughshod over people. And how can this professionalization of expertise serve the people, serve working class people, serve working poor people? Um, however, you think about the New Deal or you know, the sort of capture of progressivism under um, FDR, uh, this cost to become increasingly powerful as it you know, set itself up as an ambiguous kind of bulwark between working class people and capitalists. It became increasingly incorporated in the government. And then after the Cold War, as we said, as I said before, this class becomes incredibly powerful with regard to the prosecution of that war, but also the regulation of the professions. So as a class, it's a it's a bunch of people, you have to have gone to college, you usually have a graduate degree, You have um, credentials that allow you to exercise your profession that are supposedly managed by a professional organization. But it was John and Barbara Ehrenreich who wrote in 1977 that, strangely enough, American leftism had been completely taken over by the PMC and that it was no longer attached to um, an organic working class movement. And that was what was really, really interesting to me. It's really sparked my interest in... um, how the how the monopolization of left critical discourse by this class has, you know, led us to a kind of culture war impasse with regard to, you know, just our inability on the left to really focus on economic and bread-and-butter issues. I think you covered yeah. the child credit tax thing yeah. recently. And it's like, why wasn't that like priority number one? Right. Well, because we really, this, there's something about the corruption of this class and its priorities that really affects that. The other thing is that um, the top tier of this class doesn't need that child credit. You know, they have um, they have nannies. They have two incomes, giant incomes, and they have people taking care of their kids already. So the interests of that class override the interests of the working class in a Democratic Party. I think Um, even and that
1: I think it is even a little bit. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's even a little bit deeper than that because especially Mm -hmm. now a lot of the focus, and this is what you write out, virtue virtue hoarders, right? A lot of the focus of that class is on, you know, distinguishing them as personally virtuous um, and – finding the the people across the land that are, you know, personally unvirtuous. And that's where a lot of their sort of politics, or I would call it anti-politics, is focused. Mm. So when you have Mm. something like a child tax credit or universal health care that is going to benefit some of those undeserving, unvirtuous people— well, that's naturally going to make you less sort of enthusiastic about that than some of your other projects. I mean, one of the—I always think about—we interviewed Thomas Frank early on in this podcast, actually, and he talked about the sign that a lot of PMC people would have in their yard. And it's like, in this household, love is love, and women's rights are human rights, and it goes through this whole list. But nowhere does it talk about, like, wages or health care or inequality or unions or any of those sorts of struggles, which I think is— I think is a good sort of um, sign of what the core politics and, and the core project of that class tends to be.
2: Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I also think that it's um, in this house, we believe in science when it's convenient for us. and um, right. But it pretends to be objective. The other thing that I try to um, focus on is that this class um, cloaks its virtue in um, consumption habits. And it's able to consume in this way because of its economic privileges. But one of the things I was also going to say that influenced my, you know, um, determination to um, uh, to take apart the values and the politics and the anti-politics of this class was I had a son in 2000. And, you know, this was a little bit before the Mommy Blogs and Mommy Podcasts came out, but... There are a lot of there were a lot of women um, who were highly educated at the time, but who were married in this class at the top tier, whose husbands just made like a killing on um, the new economy. Right. So they had a lot of extra energy and um, they didn't work and they were taking care of their kids and they had their nannies. And the sort of innovations with progressive liberal parenting that were coming up at this time were just unbelievable to me like I had a friend in Silver Lake who was part of this our infant education program and we had sons the same age and um um my husband like tickled their baby and they said no uh, we don't do that that's child abuse what we think tickling is child abuse <laughs> oh, and anything you did to a child to the infant like you were changing these diapers of six month olds not necessarily fun but um they were like you had to tell your child everything you were doing. It was consent. It was modeling consent for him. It's like, I'm going to change your diaper now. I'm laying you down. I'm taking off your diaper. And and what I realized as I was watching this was that what it actually um, was trying to discipline was adults and was trying to humiliate anyone who had an intuitive or you know just sensuous like understanding of how to take care of a child that we inherit from our parents, right? Mm-hmm. But um, and for all my parents' faults, like taking care of infants has been something that Chinese grandmothers and mothers have done for thousands of years. And we've survived (laughs) pretty well. But like suddenly that wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Like you had to tell your kid. And I was like, I'm not going to tell my kid this. But um, if we hung out with them, then I'd be like, you know, manhandling my baby. And then I would have this like very precious, you know, I'm going to do this to you thing. And I don't even know that they were conscious of it, but it was total class formation Like, who the hell goes to infant education programs? People with the money and the leisure time. And then this goes on as people get educated. I remember so many people around me, because I'm, you know, in the PMC, right, telling me, like, they were sending their kids to private school because they're just so, like, it's for the whole child. And I'm thinking, okay, that's 35 to 50K a year I don't have. Great for you. And and um, taking consumption habits and making them a virtue was something that just was so outrageous to me. But it seemed so clearly part of the class war that this class is fighting.
0: So let me ask you this, because, I mean, everything you're saying is fascinating. And, you know, I definitely see issues with uh, sort of an upper middle class, elite liberal sensibility uh, thing, but when it really comes down to it, let's say hypothetically we lived in a world where Bernie got the nomination and it was Bernie Sanders versus Donald mm-hmm. Trump, whether it's 2016 or 2020, it doesn't really matter. In your estimation, what's the breakdown? Because you know, if I went with my gut here, I would say a lot of the you know the media class and aspect parts of the political establishment probably would have broke for Trump over Bernie because to them it's more about capital than anything else and continuing the status quo. Mm. But I do think a lot of these PMC types, probably majority of them would have voted for Bernie. What do you think about that?
2: Mm, I don't think so. They would have not voted, in my opinion. Like, I was around a lot of those people who are like crazy Hillary heads and war war knights, and they were like, he can't get anything done. Um, we can't vote for him because he can't pass legislation. I mean, the the level of hostility against Bernie, that was like a litmus test too. Um, so I disagree with that. I, I think they would have just sat it out. So and let- they did everything so that that wasn't the choice for them. Um, but um, if they did vote for him, they would then do everything to undermine all of his legislative um, initiatives. And the contempt... That liberals had for Bernie was like visceral. Um, I just want, like, Ezra Klein is the son of a friend of mine. And um, in 2016, he was like, Oh, Bernie can't get anything done. Hillary's so smart. And then in 2020, um, he was like, Oh, Bernie can't get anything done. But Bernie was like up and coming and winning, and kind of. And he um, he sort of sat, was less contemptuous of Bernie. And then when Bernie became chair of the um, budget committee, he became completely sycophantic with regard to Bernie. So they only respond to power and um, Bernie's lack of legislative power clout was something that they would contribute to. So I don't know. So, I, uh, I I'd be very pessimistic about it.
0: I that. guess the reason why I see it differently is because I remember distinctly, you know, being a being one of the most well-known Bernie Bros myself, <laughs> like the perfect stereotype of like what was maligned as the Bernie Bro. Um mm-hmm. there was a lot of, you know, palpable anger uh on the online left the Bernie Bro types like myself um at Hillary Clinton and but when you look at and Biden too. But when you look at when election day actually came, yeah, there was a loud contingency of like an anti-Hillary and anti-Biden voice from the left. But fundamentally, what was the number? Like over 90% of them ended up voting right. Right. For, for those respective right. candidates. And I guess, I guess my, right. my intuition, and we'll never know because we can't rerun history, but my intuition is that even though there's a lot to criticize and point out about you know the flaws in this, uh, this sort of PMC type of politics, I think if push came to shove, they would go with somebody like Bernie over somebody like Trump because that their hatred of Trump actually is an overriding factor versus their dislike of Bernie. Well, That's my opinion. Yeah, because Trump
1: opinion. is so counter to those values of virtuousness and the sort of right. signaling right. that is so right. central to their politics. Right. I guess, I mean, here's what I think part of what you're getting at, Kyle, is like if you look at the polling, right, if you're just looking pragmatically across the political landscape, of who is mm-hmm. most likely to join my project, right? My project of, let's just talk about Medicare for all. Who's most likely to join that project? And you, if you pull that liberal PMC class, you're going to find a significant number of takers, at least in theory. And if you look at the whole mm-hmm. range of issues... You're going to find, you know, more overlap with the things we want among that class than, say, among, you know, Trump's white working class supporters. So the argument goes, why not focus on aligning, like persuading and winning over this PMC class and getting them to sort of change their ways or at least not sabotage your project if you can get in there is that a more uh, plausible path to ultimately having a winning coalition.
2: So I I agree with you here. Um I think that one thing that um the book uh, really addressed was this kind of um first generation PMC person like me. I have had such an intense response from people who are aspirational PMC who are, you know, first generation college students um who are, um, you know, people of color, African-American, Latino, um, Asian-American, who found their, um, who found that their discontent with the class formation, like, articulated in the book, and in a way, like, I'm addressing them, like, Mm. and I think there are millions of them. I mean, they're young, disillusioned people who came of age when, you know, saw their families, like, Um, suffered during the 2008 financial collapse, they don't believe in capitalism. They're very, very, very open to the critique. It's people my age who I don't think can be moved. Like, everyone is set. And I want to give people who are younger, who are exploring these um, political options, who are coming of age politically, you know, awakening, like the power to say, no, we're not going to be like you like yes there are a lot of rewards to becoming you know an asshole but there actually is a critique and a mass politics that we can conjure up um because this po- the politics of um this class are bankrupt now many of these people are struggling like i had doctors um write to me and say you know i will never come out and say this but I am working 16 hours a day. I'm thousand dollars in debt or more, and what you're describing is what I am dealing with at work every day. Um, but there's no way I can say this because I need to get a job. I'm just finishing up my residency. You have no idea how much discipline is demanded of um, you know, work discipline to shut out this kind of managerial ethos that manages healthcare for profit, that manages um, universities now for profit, that manage um, our um, educations now, not for the point of view of any kind of historical material political analysis, but to satisfy private foundations and donors. And people are not happy with this. But um, they, there's no like platform for the Bernie Bro um, next step now i think we're a little bit lost now because that campaign really brought us all together and it allowed for a critique of this class to be resounding but now you know pmc feminist and pmc um pol- cultural politics are taking have taken over the democratic party again and it's like how can we create um a critical space that takes back a kind of leftism that is based on universal policies, that's based on just the very possibility of mass politics. Like, I don't think we have mass politics on the left right now, right? Yeah. But there are tendencies within the Democratic Party that and liberals that are just, like, repudiating mass politics for these niche causes that, like, some you know, that that they're, you know, um, not rocking the boat of capitalism is rewarded for. And so now we have to figure out within the PMC right now, the lower tiers of the PMC, the more committed aspects of the PMC to think about how we can rebuild mass politics. Yes, the the Trump voter or the working class voter, not just white, African-American, Asian, um, Latino who have been demobilized and just you know, like the nihilism of Trumpian politics, how do you reach them? How do you talk to them about um, how to make um, American democracy functional again? There doesn't seem to actually be much commitment on the part of the Democrats for creating that um, possibility even. So, yet, So part of the critique is that I care about, liberalism even though i'm critical of it and i'm far to the left of the liberalism. i care about democracy actually and i care about um working class the majority of working class people are suffering under this untenable um economic and political situation but it doesn't seem like there's any public way of actually instantiating that because we've been captured within left liberal politics by i would say like a boutique um a boutique stylization, self stylization, if you like, and it's really frustrating right now. We're really in the in a um, cultural impasse. I know a lot of people have been critical of Bernie because Bernie has talked about, you know, how Russia has infringed on, you know, the national sovereignty of Ukraine, and so the um, intervention has to take place. But where, but without a program, a clear program of how that might help Americans or working-class Americans, we're, we're in a vacuum right now. And Bernie is a disciplined and loyal guy. And for whatever reason, he feels very loyal to Biden. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't quite know what to do about that. But the fact that he reached people um, that the Democratic Party has not been able to reach for 30, 40 years, that was incredible and inspiring and moving. Yeah, so, and, uh, so- One of the most important things that happened in my lifetime.
0: I guess I guess in some ways I have a little bit more hope because the issues that you so eloquently described I think those are real problems that we're dealing with but I do think um, in some ways it's a mirage because those those issues are centered among the political establishment like the liberal elite democratic politicians and like the donor class okay. I actually have more help, more hope for the actual people of the democratic party no matter how goofy they may be as members of the pmc because again to crystal's point when i actually look at the polling i see a lot of stuff that's uh, you know hopeful so you know you see the polls of 70 percent of the country supporting medicare for all i mean i don't need to go here and list all these things you know it just as well as i do and so when you have that nominal agreement on the actual policies uh, i feel a similar way in approaching these people as i feel about approaching you know, Republican voter, populist right person X. It's like the path here is to effectively almost play an agnosticism role on the culture war, right? Or like, you know, Mm -hmm. not to Mm -hmm. say you don't have positions on it because you can have positions on it, but it's about not putting that front and center, therefore stoking the culture war, making everything worse and pouring fuel on the fire. So you take sort of like this uh, opting out path in terms of your rhetoric on the culture war, but then you go all in on the economic populism and then you build as big a tent as possible and that may include uh, average Joe and Jane Republican voter X who are more economically populist because they're from a union family and it may also include the PMC person who even though culturally I might be uh, disagree with them just as much as I disagree with the Republican, but as long as they're there and the things that matter, you know, we can actually make this work as long as we can, because again, the main problem is the Corrupt political establishment, which is blocking all of this change for structural reasons.
2: All right. So we so we read the polls. We have a political strategy that we think might work. Um, which politician is building on that strategy right now? I don't know.
0: Right. That's the um, problem. I, I just, agree with you.
2: Yeah. So that there, there's all of this energy that can be harnessed, and this um, alliance that can be created between you know working class people on both sides of the political spectrum. I would say that working class people actually represent a kind of demobilized, like angry core of the mass Mm. of the American masses, actually. But um, I was just talking to a bunch of my students yesterday and we were talking about um, the the western and we we're talking about the myth of the frontier and how it's like inherently racist but it's based on the stream of american social mobility and autonomy and sort of um you know the uh, uh, american idea that you know on unbothered by you know native americans or a government you can create a little piece of heaven on the frontier and how this is still like at play in um, our national dream, right? And my st- a bunch of my students said, you know, that might have been operational until 2000, but I've seen what my parents have gone through since 2000, especially with 2008. And I don't think that's the dream right now. There's, it's completely bankrupt. Like that doesn't resonate with us at all. And so the next thing they say is, and government is the problem. Mm -hmm. So I guess like somehow like Fox News reaches them or Libertarian, like TikTok reaches them. And they're like, yeah, the government comes in and does all these things. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys like, okay it's the government like foreclosing on your home. It's a bank. But then I realized, you know, in 2008, Obama bailed out the banks. He didn't bail out individuals. So that was the government in a way. Like, I'm making this, like, plea to think about politics as a kind of democratic field where you can um, take action. And they're thinking about government and politics as a conspiracy against their families. Yeah, And, you know, what Obama did in 2009, I guess it was after... Um, With the help of all of Geithner and Summers and, you know, all those guys who with Harvard degrees who decided that banks were too big to fail, but people could lose their homes. That has damaged our politics so deeply and someone has to address that. These are really smart college age kids They're not um, liberal arts majors of of privilege by any means. Like, these are not Sarah Lawrence students. These are not Wellesley students. These are not Smith students or Ivy League students. These are, like, middle-class Californians. And you can see, like, their, um, like, skepticism because of the economic suffering that the Southwest, like, this whole year has gone through about their prospects. Yeah. And government well, has like, government is the problem for them. And I'm like thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, <laughs> how can I say it's not? But I, I was like, well, there's this other thing called capitalism. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like they've heard that too, but I can't. But like I said, yeah, so the capitalists have bought the government, right? So that's the problem. They're like, hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. But the government is still a villain in well, their mind. I think- And I think because the government is taken over by PMC people.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's tremendous. And that's so to me, the uh, possibility, the opening is that you have within the PMC a lot of precarity and a lot of people who are terrified of, you know, their kids not being able to stay in that class or their young people who are just coming into professional careers and not finding it nearly, you know, the stable path that it was for their parents or certainly for their grandparents. I mean, look at the, you know, the struggles of adjunct professors is like a perfect example yep. of that type of professional precarity. And so there's a potential class consciousness and solidarity available there. Yep. Um because there's also a lot of shame in the class of like if you aren't able to pony up for the 50k uh, pr- private school tuition or have the house look the, the way it's supposed to look and have the things that are supposed to signal to society that you're this virtuous person, that creates a lot of shame and anxiety that people feel uncomfortable talking about. So I do think there's an opportunity for a kind of class solidarity. The big challenge is almost like th- there's almost such a an ideological um, commitment to the, the virtue hoarding. I do think that's the major stumbling block because if your whole politics are centered around who's good and who's evil, it makes the politics of collective action and solidarity universal programs, you know, at the very least, it's going to be the bottom of your priorities if you don't oppose it outright, which is what we have seen from some in the class. I think a lot about Virginia politics. Um, it's where I'm born and raised and where I still live. And Virginia, up until Youngkin got elected, which is an interesting story in and of itself in the way that, you know, suburbanites turned Mm -hmm. towards him. But before him, you know, the state was blue. It had uh, a blue governor, senators, the House, the Senate. They could do anything that they wanted. And yet their agenda Mm -hmm. was very, mostly very symbolic. Um, They did not. They continue to be. Virginia continues to be one of the worst states in the entire country for labor rights. And again, this is under a Democratic Party because the PMC was so dominant in that coalition in Northern Virginia that their priorities were all things like, we're going to symbolically pass the ERA and things, you know, things of that nature, which, <laughs> you know, OK, fine. But it's not going to help people be able to have workers have power in their workplaces or to, to lift their wages and those sorts of things.
2: Look at what happened. In, look in California, supermajority assembly legislature. Um, California has a Democratic governor. Look at our um, the inequality in the state, the way in which um, a real estate has made has uh, made for, you know, just an impossible future for younger people, but very good for homeowners. All of our policies are designed to benefit upper middle class professionals. Now they do, like yeah, you know, some like very wealthy Republicans are like, I'm moving to Vegas, I'm moving to Texas because there's too many taxes and regulations in this state. But the um, as you say, Crystal, we have the same kind of suburban progressive politics in one of the most unequal states with one of the biggest homeless problems in America. And we are priding ourselves on our, you know, Residential solar policies, which benefit people like me because I own a home and I pay enough taxes that, that solar, um, solar panel thing, you know, really is good for me. Tax break, I put it on my rooftop. But this is not a solution to global warming. It's all private, individualized solutions with tax breaks involved. Mm. I mean, the freaking Tesla tax break is basically fund, you know, a subsidy to Elon Musk. And I was like, oh, I have a Tesla. It's so fantastic. <laughs> um, we have the most ridiculous boutique politics that are anti-mass politics, really. And we're like supposed to be this progressive, you know, state. It's really that I mean, it's the however saying that to say we'll put it that way. So the Democratic Party establishment is very, you know, um, PMC oriented, but I am so um I was so charged up by the fact that Bernie won the primary in California by a landslide. Mm. Young people turned out. Yeah. I I went to a 5,000-person rally for him, like called in 24 hours. Young Asian-Americans, Latino, African-Americans, like students of mine of every variety, every sexual orientation were all crying in Santana. And I was like, okay, who... This is the. This could be the future of the Democratic Party. But then we've also got Diane Feinstein as our um, senator and Nancy Pelosi, you know, mm-hmm. the geriatric rich ladies from San Francisco. So I yeah. want to be optimistic. Like when I'm on the ground, like when we were, you know, knocking on doors for Bernie, it was really fantastic. But then you actually look at the Democratic establishment.
0: Yeah, I California. mean, but. Again, I find I find that more hopeful, though, because to me, the problem in California is just embodied in what just happened with the single payer bill that got killed. And there's no doubt that the problem there was the health insurance company is, you know, feeding the Democratic Party with ungodly amounts of cash. And it's just flat out corruption it's just they're doing the bidding of the donors against the will of the people so and- grateful
2: that you so grateful that you're following that because i don't think it got covered nationally
0: yeah either. sirota did a great job covering that at daily poster so credit to him for you know opening our eyes on it because you covered it on your show i covered <laughs> it on my show but yeah like that's what i see is the problem whereas i i view even like a lot of the goofy pmc people i view i view as uh you know victims of the system like you brought up um Virginia. And you said, well, the problem is there's like a good versus evil mindset, which is like, that's true that that mindset is real. But that's also the mindset when the Republicans do the culture war and talk about Dr. Seuss all day. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't stop us from wanting to like reach out and, and reform and however we can. You know what I mean? So we yeah. got to give that same olive branch to these types, in my opinion. Well,
2: so what about though? What about the energy that's expended on cancel culture? Well, that's what we're trying yeah, to fight on like our side of that.
0: That you're 100% right, and that's a problem, which is why anytime I talk about the issue of cancel culture, I take sort of this meta position of like, I'll give my opinion on it, but why are any of us talking about this anyway? Because is not the conversation to be having. The conversation to be having is about our you know, ridiculous military budget and we don't have universal health care and you know, we need to pass the PRO Act and we need a $15 minimum wage and stuff like that. But I feel like it's so easy for people to get bogged down. I mean, that's it's the oldest trick in the book, right? Have the elites get the peasants to fight amongst themselves as they run out the back door with all the money. Yeah. And so you got to try your best to... Um, shine a light on that as opposed to just partaking in the, the blood sports of the culture war picking aside and then saying everybody who disagrees with me is evil.
1: Catherine, how do you define the culture war and where do you sort of track its roots to? Because you were you started off talking about the sort of counterculture of the 60s and how that leads sort of feeds into the culture war dynamic that we have now that corporations have clearly realized is very much to their advantage and have, you know, mm. weaponized to their own ends
2: um it's it's a long story but i but i do think it's like this um it it came out of a real disillusionment with the american empire um after the vietnam war um there was a real divide between college educated college educated people co- non college educated people that came to the fore but the divisions on um sort of economic issues was not so clear but this sort of College educated um, cosmopolitanism, I would say, of the counterculture and its openness, uh, allegedly, to um, different forms of identity did represent like real progress in some ways with regards to American Protestant, you know, provincialism and racism. And so the um, civil rights movement, the women's rights movement that came out of the 60s unrest, though, became immediately captured, I would say. By a college educated class, which began to use these forms of um, sort of um, like cultural um, advancement to heap contempt on working class people. Bussing became um, a huge dividing line between those who were against segregation and pro-segregation. But I would say like even more so the American establishment, I would say like the CIA and Pro, actually had a really, really good um, take on seeding a kind of division within the left itself to, to um, sort of create a division between like the, the sort of more classically old left and this new left that was going to be more um committed to cultural, a culturalist agenda. And the old left were increasingly seen as like left behind, still identifying with Stalin and um, materialist issues. And what you had was this this generation of people had grown up in a very affluent society. Um, sort of adjudicate like the next kinds of progress that we're going to be making are cultural cultural forms of progress. And that actually had less resistance and the counterculture became much more adapted to consumerist forms of life. While actually America was going through the US economic policies were going through a kind of um, austerity that was implemented to fight inflation and inflation of wages. So um, in a way, the culture war served to discipline working class discontent and working class working people's demands for more leisure time, more wages, more of everything. Instead of building a coalition there, the PMC um, New Left culturalist, said, "You know, we're just so advanced because we have. You guys are just racist and backward, and they're and you're hopeless, and we're just much more cosmopolitan, advanced, and we're going to teach you how to be and live in the world. And that's very much captured by a kind of cosmopolitan consumerism." And by, you know, how the counterculture's alignment with the new economy. I mean, everyone knows that um Silicon Valley comes out of the counterculture. Mm. and this notion of information and accessibility that were all good things in the democ- in sort of democratizing um our access to, you know, books and other people became very quickly captured after mosaic and worldwide the world wide web became um divided between Google, Facebook, and Apple, and Microsoft, it didn't have to go this way, yeah, that's but right. it has gone this way. And so I, that was like a very, very elaborate answer. I have like, you know, more detailed breakdown of it, but um, this is what it, ha- this is what like we need to be teaching our, my students about the kind of intellectual history of our politics, but instead we're just teaching them balkanized like identity politics, transgression. They're still like so into transgression and disruption in my field. And I just wish that we had like better recent history. Yeah. So let me ask you this. We're we're just giving up on that. Let me ask you this. This just occurred Mm -hmm.
0: to me. Is one of the connecting tissue features between PMC types, like liberal elite types and conservative voters, is that in my experience, they both sort of seem to, believe that we're already living in some semblance of a meritocracy that it's like the harder you work, the further you go. Yes. So that like neutralizes a more class focused politics right off the bat. And
2: so for them, there's a kind of, um, it's, the system is functioning. The status quo, it's, It's you know, the status quo functions, we just have to fight over, like, how to optimize the status mm. quo. And in one sense, um, the sort of American dream of the conservatives means we need to have government out of the picture so that everyone can, you know, perform their hustle. And then in the other side of the dream, it's just that we need to optimize admissions to elite universities so we can have the greatest you know, amount of diversity in higher education. And um, what actually has been shown to improve um, economic outcomes for working class people is like really, really is ch- the child tax credit and universal child care and better support for families. But nobody really focuses on that. I was like optimizing affirmative action or get government out of the way so we can all hustle our way to success. And um, in both cases, there's an idea that we just tweak and we don't and we give up on the notion of any kind of collective universal enterprise and a kind of mutual responsibility. But the one thing that I do think is really scary is that remember like, OK, you guys don't remember this, but. The hippies and the counterculture were like, oh, we're all about pleasure and we just, you know, smoke pot and we do acid and we're like, you know, divorcing our wives and husbands and we're sleeping together and we're just, we're all like, you know, gay, whatever. And then We're not shaving the, um, our armpits. The, we're not shaving our pits, <laughs> and the conservatives are all uptight. There's up a, tight. There's they a get lot of their, pleasure in that. They, they have their, like, they're, they're behind their white picket fences, they're from monogamy, whatever. Now... I think what's happened with the notion of the conservative working class family is that it's completely fallen apart. All the rates of divorce are non-college educated people. Mm. You look at every, more children are born out of wedlock to college, to people who haven't gone on to college and they are born in wedlock. There is no nuclear family that's possible in the ways in which, uh, because working class kinship networks and cities and everything else have been completely devastated. And it's the PMC, it's the upper middle class like those cosmopolitan types. They don't get divorced because they have two income. Fam- they might be in the two income trap, but um, they 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 have stable nuclear families, rates of divorce among college people going down. And they're super not into pleasure. All of their pleasures <laughs> are like about regulation. They're not hedonists. And I think a lot of the... Um, Fox News types and like the, you know, conservative elites, they get this. Trump got this. So he's like, oh, I like pleasure. I eat McDonald's. You know, I I grab people's, you know, based. food tanks. And I'm just like for pleasure because the PMC the is anti-pleasure now. Get it? I mean, this yeah. is like conservative elites have really like taken, they want to take back pleasure because they know PMC elites have like serious trouble with hedonism.
1: Well, I am They're not
2: the most highly regulated people.
1: It's yeah. so true. I'm I'm personally trying to up the divorce rate of the PMC. That's a, a personal mission
2: I've been engaged
1: in. A <laughs> um, hey,
2: noble mission. I am divorced. A little one woman mission over here. Um, and be married.
1: <laughs> what do you, tell me tell me what you see in in the youths though? Because you're a professor, you're working with young people all the time. And on the one hand, obviously there's a sort of wokeness is very central to the politics but they also loved burning you know and they also support medicare for all and really care yeah. about you know climate and are on board with the green new deal so what do you see as sort of um defining their politics
2: i i can't say for the whole group but i'm very upset that Um, the tiny group numbers of people who go to small private liberal arts colleges and the Ivy League Northeastern private colleges get all the attention. So we get like a lot of news about how woke this generation is. And, you know, if you look at um, the students in the UC system and the Cal State system, in the um, community college system in California, we're talking about millions of students. In the small liberal arts college wokeness world, we're talking about maybe like tens of thousands, maybe like 50, 60,000. So it's a difference between like millions versus this tiny group of people. And I see the media attention focusing on the wokeness of this tiny group of people and the vast majority of college students or, you know, first-generation college students, working class, middle-class college students, they're like, they're into, they're struggling to survive economically. They want, they have, they feel like they have little to no room for real curiosity or exploitation or exploration in their studies. We say things like, oh, my God, they're not doing, you know, they're so not curious. They're a little great. They're grade grubby. They're addicted to TikToks are watching YouTube. I just think that they're like riven with economic anxiety. Um, They've been pushed. They know that, objectively speaking, um, the social mobility rank, their prospects are not good. And so, um, I I feel like there are a lot of them who are not politically motivated because of the you know of survival, but they're also super cynical about certain things because they've had a lot of ideological indoctrination in high school already in the codes of wokeness. You know, I had a son who just went through high school recently, and so it's it's a it's a kind of scary split right now. But I do feel, like Kyle says, like potentially speaking, they are very critical of the way things are. And if we had another kind of political mobilization, and I want to stay optimistic here, I think they would be very receptive to, as we've seen, socialism and a critique of capitalism. They've um they're much more receptive than any generation that came before. But to say that they are captured by wokeness is not really saying very much. Let's say like a tiny group of them who go to elite universities who are then like going to um, become members of the uh, mainstream media, whatever. They are captured by this kind of wokeness. The great majority of um, students are not. They're not going, they don't go to these um, institutions and they have a kind of, Skepticism and anxiety that I think um, has been exacerbated by the um, pandemic, yeah. which has also like really um, curtailed their social lives. Their so- like socialization itself at this age and it um, is really important. And you know we're just coming out of this isolation. And I feel like we have to remake so many things. I would like to see like that remaking happening on the left, but I'm not, you know, and, you know, we have yet to see what 2024 will bring, will bring, the Democrats are going to get spanked so hard, but um, in 2022 as well. But um, is there a possibility to actually create a genuine left movement? um this generation is ripe for that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And we've
2: got to stop focusing on like the 10 colleges where a lot of this hyper-wokeness comes out of like just stop it. It's what yeah. you say like stop engaging with them. Look at like just just do a like rough statistical model and say most kids go to public universities, most kids go to state schools, most kids go to community colleges in america get in higher ed what are they doing what are they thinking stop focusing on you know
1: although unfortunately warming. those that sliver of elites we know will be disproportionately powerful and you know populate there that that's like biden saying he wants to be the bridge to the pete Buttigieg's of the world they'll oh, be you know whoever pete hands off to, right <laughs> um Professor did Catherine he say Liu. That? Did he yeah, he say- did. He did. He really actually said that. Um, Yikes. I wish I could forget. Uh, Professor Catherine Liu, the book is "Virtue Hoarders: The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class." I could not possibly recommend it more to folks. Um, it is punchy. You describe it as uh, polemical, and uh, it is such a, a treat to get to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Kyle and Crystal.
1: Our pleasure.
0: All right. So that was Kath- Catherine Liu. Um, I know you've enjoyed her appearances on uh, Jacobin Podcast. I enjoyed it as well. You sent me uh, one of her interviews, and I thought it was really insightful. Um, I do struggle, though, overall, as you can tell, with this conversation, because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I agree. All the criticisms of the professional managerial class, by the way, I don't like that term. It's weird to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. What do, you, do you have a problem? Just upper
0: middle class. It's mostly upper middle class people we're talking about, right? Yeah. And that's just it. Upper middle class with like, Modern sensibilities with elitist. Yeah. She talks about
1: people that don't like y- use their bodies in their labor. Right. I'm mean, yeah. talking about office workers and credentials. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. White collar workers. Mm-hmm. Right. But the reason why I struggle with it is because I feel like if you and I are going to be consistent with our politics, uh, in the same way that we have an olive branch for the savables, on the right. Yeah. You know, like I've written off the entire elected Republican Party. I, I None of them are. They're so bought and owned. They're so off the deep end with the far right mm-hmm. social views and economic views. It's like useless. 80% of the Democratic Party elected officials, same thing. But like the Democratic base and some of the Republican base, anybody who's savable, I want to save. And so when I see somebody, even if they have all these goofy cultural things, but they're somewhat open to leftist ideas, it's like. That's not somebody I want to alienate. That's somebody I want to work hard to get in the fold. And I feel like if we don't do that, then we're really betraying the 99% versus 1% line because they're part of the 99%. Yeah,
1: well, there's there's a fine line to be walked between... You have to point out the um, the problems of the, the class at large and sort of the general worldview because it's not just that their views are goofy. It's that they're an actual obstacle to collective action and solidarity and change because if your focus is on this like virtue signaling and figuring out who's in the club and who's not in the club and making sure that you get put on – marked on the good side of that line – that's not just going to distract you. That's going to be an active obstacle to any sort of sort of mass movement. So, here, so you have to. So you have to be able to point that out. Well, okay. Without, but without alienating yes. people is the point. And that's the point. One of the things. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember. There's that big primary fight with Ed Markey and uh, Joe Kennedy, the mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. young one. Joe Kennedy Jr. Is that what his name is? Anyway, the young Kennedy guy,
0: ginger boy. J-
1: Yes, that one. Yeah. Um, And anyway...
0: Weird lips too, but go on.
1: The ultimate coalition that uh, put Marky over the top was like sort of affluent liberal suburbanites was PMC plus the Bernie bro base, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what allowed him to go back. And Mm -hmm. Marky is not perfect, but he has better politics than Kennedy, way better. And certainly he's been a leader in terms of climate action. So, which is part of why um, uh, Sunrise Movement really got behind him. So that created, that demonstrates the possibility of that kind of coalition But like I said, I don't think it works without having a process of education about how their current orientation to politics is not only incorrect, but is an actual obstacle and a problem.
0: I can grant that point if we also grant the point that conservative voters then are also an obstacle Mm -hmm. because they are so, you know, they get so into the Dr. Seuss this and whatever, you know, all the all the little, you know, trans bathroom that. You know, yeah. as if it's like the downfall of Western civilization if you let somebody use the bathroom that they want to use, you know, as if it's going to lead to like widespread mass sexual assaults when it doesn't at all. So I'll grant you that it's an obstacle if we say it is for conservative voters, too. I guess I guess the reason why I'm hung up on it is because. I don't want to risk alienating any further. I'm so into the persuasion side of it that if I tell them to, to their face, you're an obstacle to what I want to do. They're, it, immediately, the defenses are going up. So you got to be artful as to how you change the minds mm-hmm. and reform, not just the upper middle class liberal elite types, but also the conservative voters.
1: You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the biggest—well, and the real problem, a lot of this comes from— um corporations and a cynical corporate media that profits off of persuading people that, you know, the the most important political project that they could be engaged in is figuring out like what's wrong with the rest of the country and right, you yeah. know aggressively attacking them for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's really the nub of the problem. It's not that these People are bad people. In fact, they're people who are well-intentioned and want to be yeah, on the, the right thing. side it's of like, history and you know want to be engaged in some sort of project that makes them feel good about having a positive impact in the country. That is their self-conception.
0: In a weird way, they want to play the game of I'm leftier than thou. You know, they have these like upper middle class wages. They're pretty stable in that respect. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of guilt or something around that. And so it's like, how do I outleft others? And it's like, I know. I'll be the most into identity politics of everything and cast dispersions on those who disagree in the most vituperative terms possible. Yeah. And it's like you have to redefine it for people so that they understand. Actually, traditional leftism, like classic Marxism, is all about class, like all about class. So if you're really committed and you want to be, you know, uh, Mr. Lefty and this is part of your identity and your ideology, it's like. You better get out there, start talking about unions and start talking about raising the minimum wage and start talking about reducing income and wealth inequality and ending the corruption and all that stuff.
1: Eric Adams is kind of the perfect human embodiment of how that type of politics can be like weaponized for completely corporate ends, he uses his personal identity, the fact that he's a black man with working class roots to basically justify everything he does, even when it's aligning with landlords or developers Mm or, you know, corporate establishment. He just used, um, we had Ross Barkin on Breaking Points to talk about, because he's been a great chronicler of, of Eric Adams up in New York City, to talk about how He got, for the first time, a little bit of negative press coverage about one of his trips up to Albany with regards to criminal justice reform. He was trying to roll back some Mm -hmm. of the bail reforms, and he was getting some critical questions. And this was the first time, really, since he's been mayor, most of the coverage, as you know, has been pretty glowing of Mm -hmm. this guy. And the minute there were tough questions, he uses the identity card and basically accuses this largely white, liberal journalist class of being racist against him, and that's why they're questioning him. And you can see how it would work, because if that's what your sort of political orientation is, and it's been all about this, like, virtue signaling and hollow identity politics, then the minute that the black man from the working class background is like, you're not listening to black men on this, then it can Mm -hmm. be a very powerful weapon to insulate him from any sort of criticism and allow him to continue what is effectively a corporate agenda that's very bad for the multiracial working class.
0: It reminds me of the um, CIA woke ad (laughs) where they were like, you know, I'm a Latinx woman with, you know, mental health disorders, but I'm part of the CIA and you can be too. Right. And that was almost like that was almost like a litmus test for everybody. (laughs) Just how far gone are you down the rabbit hole of this silliness that like, what is the CIA now good? Are you going to defend this? Like, are you do you think that? What do you think the point is of them doing this? It is to shield the criticism. It is to deflect. It's to be like, can't get mad at us. We're actually down with the times and leftier than now here at the CIA. Yeah. Like, no, you're not. You're using this as a shield. You're using this to deflect criticism in the most dishonest, disingenuous way imaginable. And it's exactly like the Eric Adams thing. And yeah, I mean- the good news is, like I said, my I, I reserve most of my ire for the political establishment because I think they are the real problem. And I genuinely have a disagreement with her because I really think when push came to shove, the overwhelming majority of these people would have voted for Bernie Sanders over Donald
1: Trump. I think you're right about yeah. that. Because I, mean, I do think I, I There's think, some that wouldn't in the media no, There but may have they been would've. what might have happened, especially in twenty sixteen, is remember, what was that dude's name, Evan McMullen or whatever? Yeah, or that guy Yeah, like there may have been A significant chunk that votes for him. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or offered their own sort of no labels y like virtue signaling. I don't even think a significant chunk, like ten percent but, I, yeah, I mean, some percentage of them, I think, would have voted for that guy. Um but Trump is so is such an assault on the, like virtue signaling mm-hmm. value yeah. that, yeah, i I can't see them voting in large numbers for Trump. Now, the question is once if Bernie gets elected, then, what do they do when he's in office? Are they? sort of, you know, do they undermine his agenda? Do they support his agenda? What does th- that look like? Do enough of them vote for McMullen that he is unable to get elected to start with? How does no, that No, no, no. Right I now?
0: think the partisan brainworms are strong enough where on that alone they sort of hold somewhat true to Bernie. Yeah. Um but I think that here's the thing. And this is where I think she got stuck on it too. I think there'd be a very loud contingent online of these PMC types who are like never Bernie.
1: Ah! Yeah.
0: And you'd get a misperception of like I guess there's going to be like more than half of them not voting for Bernie, but when the numbers actually rolled in, it'd be like 90% of them voted for Bernie. And um, so I think ultimately, again... These people are allies, even though we like to make fun of them. But you know what? I make fun of conservatives all the time, too. And there are some voters on the populist right who would be there genuinely for economic stuff. Not among the politicians. They're for charlatans and frauds in common, but among the people. And so, yeah, like like you say, what's the thing you always say about your show, the slogan you guys are using for hate breaking points?
1: less and hate the elites more. That's what it always comes down to. And <laughs> that's,
0: that's why I was a little skittish on this yeah. conversation well, in general. I, th- I, I, get, I get triggered because that... I don't want to be a hypocrite on it. I want to be like, you know— harder I, we on. We talk them about ninety nine percent versus one percent. Now I'm gonna attack other people in the ninety nine percent because they raise their kids weird? Like no.
1: Yeah. I I think that this is why I try to steer clear of doing like You can get a lot of clicks online from doing like the mega Karen does, blah, blah, blah. Or you can do, you know, the same thing on the liberal version of like, you know, somebody having a a meltdown and three masks at a meeting or whatever, you know. I mean, and that that also. The libs of TikTok content. That's exactly the libs of TikTok Mm -hmm. content. That's a perfect example. And that stuff is very popular. It gets a lot of views, it gets a lot of traffic. And I just think it's ultimately destructive um i think it really misses the problem of where where the issues are emanating from
0: sean mccarthy was saying last night that the person who runs that was uh is a spook <laughs> Had some receipts too oh i'm not gonna really? say anything else but you add some receipts too sean i was McCarthy. like damn maybe that's a spook respect yeah. respect all right all right guys we love you very much thanks for tuning in uh subscribe on substack five dollars a month we'll get you the video of the entire podcast and you get it a day early and you could also um you know, sign up for free on Substack and then you'll just get the audio version of the podcast when it drops a day later. Either way, sign up on Substack. And remember, uh, we really appreciate your support of this show because this is, uh, is it, can I say it's the only show? that raise has no other revenue but just the small dollar donations, the $5 I, at a time? Is that true?
1: I'm, I'm sure it's not true, but I don't know of another one. All right. Well,
0: it's part of like 1% of podcasts <laughs> that have said, we don't want any ad money at all in any way, shape, or form. So it's all funded by you guys. We love you very much. We appreciate you. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: Love you. I'll see you next week.